Welcome to Keep Taking Girl on the Saxophone Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Ryan, and we're back with season number two. Again, I want to say a huge thank you to everyone that tuned in and commented, shared the episodes from last season, and subscribed to the, to the channel. I'm excited to bring you 10 new conversations this season. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Um, you can expect conversations with award-winning and in-demand saxophonists from around the world and across jazz and contemporary styles. I, I really believe that award-winning and in-demand saxophonists know something that the rest of us don't yet know. And that's what really I'm curious about. So I want to create a resource that would help you to keep taking ground in your personal, professional, musical, and creative journeys and connect with the saxophone community worldwide. So without further ado, uh, today's guest is a multiple Juno award-winning saxophonist, composer, and educator who has been a leading figure in the Canadian jazz community and beyond for over 25 years. He's performed with the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, Maria Schneider, Christian McBride, Kenny Werner, uh, Phil Woods, uh, Brian Blade, and Randy Brecker, to name a few. He holds a bachelor's degree from McGill University in Montreal and a master's degree from Manhattan School of Music in New York. He's performed extensively in Canada, the United States, Japan, Thailand, um, and many other places, including a nine-month tour with the legendary trumpeter Maynard Ferguson. He's currently a faculty member at both the University of Toronto and York University, and it's totally my pleasure to welcome the amazing Kelly Jefferson to the podcast. Kelly, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Jesse. Thank you so much for the invitation. Man, it's my pleasure. I, I've been a, a huge uh, fan. It feels weird saying fan, but <laughs> I've been I've been following your music for for since, since I moved to Canada. Really, um, I met you in 2014 um, during the Youth Jazz Canada workshop, and um, it's no, no doubt you've been one of the the, the huge Canadian saxophonists. Um, that have influenced me and many other players for generations. So again, it's my pleasure to have you. And um, let's start right at the beginning. How did you get a saxophone in your hand? Okay. Um, well, thanks again, Jesse. Uh, it's, yeah. it's really my, my pleasure to be here. And um, um, yeah, I'm also a big fan of yours. <laughs> Uh, so I, um, I grew up in uh, the prairies of Canada in Regina, Saskatchewan. Uh, I come from a musical family. Um, my dad is a piano player, uh, essentially self-taught, but has made his living in music uh, in uh, Regina, which is where he was born, and mm -hmm. he's spent his whole life there. Uh, my older brother plays the drums, and um, music was always around. You know, it was around our house, and um, uh, my older brother was playing, and as he was a member of a of a community band uh, organization in Regina okay. uh, at that time, sponsored by the Lions Clubs. It was called the Regina oh, yeah. Lions Band. Good old, good old Lions and, Club. Uh, yeah. yeah, and uh, has a, had has a huge history of um, uh, youth music initiatives yeah. uh, throughout uh, throughout Regina. So it was a citywide uh, band program, and so my brother joined the band, and I went to the concerts. You know, as a young kid, and and um, I was, you know, I loved going to the concerts and I was struck by the saxophone specifically because of how it looked. Why, why not? <laughs> you know, I mean, I wish I could say, yeah, I wish I could say it was some sort of, you know, I felt the, uh, 
artistic <laughs> calling uh, from from hearing the tone of the saxophone. But really, it was just because because I thought it looked cool. Yeah. Um, and so my dad at the time uh, ran a music studio where he and a partner uh, hired uh, musicians um, and teachers from from different instruments and everything and they and they rented a studio space so I would go and hang out there you know on the weekends and um, whenever I could basically uh, but I was curious about the saxophone but the saxophone teacher only taught there I think on Saturdays or something and yeah. the horns weren't there for me to play and I wouldn't have played them anyway you know snooping around the rooms or something so <laughs> so my dad said look you know Bill Freeman was his name uh, and uh, Bill had a break in his schedule or maybe after he was done his lessons and he agreed to just kind of show me the saxophone and nice. I played a little bit. And this uh, studio that, that my dad had was uh, right across the street from one of the local music stores. So we went right across and rented me an alto. Nice. And uh, that was it. Um, and so I started playing in, uh, in the Lions Band in Regina. Mm -hmm. uh, I was 10. I was 10 years old when I started. Yeah. And... Um, you know, like I said, it was never, it was very uh, natural, I guess, for me to be involved with music. And it was more of a social thing for me. Right. from the Because your family was already involved, you know, in yeah. music. Yeah, yeah exactly. And um, uh, so I was in the Lions Band uh, until I graduated high school. Um, and also involved in, in my school music programs as well. And, um, you know, the Lions Band gave us the opportunities to perform quite a bit. We took summer trips and yeah. uh, we had this big trip to Europe when I was 16. It was wow. a big, you know, it was a big uh, moment. A lot of, you know, a lot of life, life affirming things for me. Yeah, but yeah. again, it was, um, uh, I guess... You know, the band certainly taught us musical skills and how to play as an ensemble and play together. And um, yeah. what kind of material were you guys playing? Then? Well, it was a concert band, okay. primarily a concert band, which yeah. was also a marching band. Okay. Uh, and they had jazz band as well. Uh, they had three different bands, um, which that was optional. Um, but everybody that was in the band did concert band and marching band. And there gotcha. was, you know, we'd go to music festivals and things like that and have concerts and, yeah, yeah. um, uh, went down to the States quite a bit for our summer tours as well. And, um, so it was concert band repertoire and that's, that's really when I started playing. I, I switched to tenor when I joined, uh, the, uh, jazz band. Okay. And so I played tenor from the time, I guess I was maybe 12 years old. Um, and because my brother was a drummer, I actually got involved in like more of the drumline, uh, like marching percussion. Yeah. Uh, w once I was in the older groups, I started playing uh, bass drum first, and then I switched to snare drum. And um, and uh, so that was a, like just for the marching band. And then I played saxophone in concert band and jazz band. Cool. Cool. Um, and so I could certainly, you know, I, I, I was able to read music. Uh, oh, I loved wow. being in the jazz band uh even just to explore in terms of soloing like that was my first real uh you know but my 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 first real uh exploration into yeah, into, yeah. into soloing but um as far as training i mean i didn't really have much theoretical background i didn't take your training courses or anything like that until i got to university so gotcha. um and you know, I think it's important for me to maybe mention that, um, you know, certainly, you know, 
giving myself an opportunity to think back to those times. I mean, there were great instructors in the band yeah. program. And I'm also extremely grateful to my family for giving me the opportunity to pursue something that I was interested in with zero pressure, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, I, I was in my last year of high school and it all kind of happened quite, quite, uh, you know, quickly, I guess, for me, yeah. where I thought, well, I really love music. I love the saxophone. I love playing in jazz band. I think I want to try to pursue this, you know. And, so, so let's talk about that. You know, so you moved from the Paris, Regina. Yes. And you went to McGill. So from the Paris to Montreal. So let's talk about, you know, different part of Canada altogether. So let's talk about that. You know, what, what, what was that transition like and your, and your period of undergrad study? study? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was a definitely um, a really important time for me. Um, so I sent an audition tape to McGill when I, when I applied there. Yeah. Um, and um, when I found out I got accepted, uh, you know, I was able to make it happen and, and, and go to Montreal. There, there was also um, uh, a few other musicians that were from Regina that went to different high schools, but through our parents or somehow we found out that we were going to McGill at the same time. And one in particular was a great piano player named Tilden Webb, okay. uh, who, who now lives in Vancouver. And... Um, is a fantastic musician and um uh so we connected before we left to montreal and our parents of course booked the same flight for us and everything <laughs> and we flew to montreal but for me i had never been to montreal until i went to actually start right. the the uh, first semester of my undergrad and and uh, i lived in residence and um after that after the first year i uh, ended up rooming with tilden for the for the remainder of the undergrad and I, I did spend a total of 10 years in Montreal after that. But um, but really for me, uh, you know, like I mentioned, I, I had everything to gain, I think, from being in a program like that because I really didn't know all that much. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, I you know, I, like, like I said, I could read music, I guess, at, at a good enough level and understand some of the stylistic things, maybe about playing in the jazz ensemble and playing yeah. with, with an ensemble. Um, and I guess my ear was okay, but again, I didn't really, uh, you know, I wasn't really practicing very much in high school. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was, you know, practicing meant going to a rehearsal uh, with the Lions band or, or any number of things. I mean, we would jam at home and stuff, but all just right. very, very informal. And I mean, I took the odd lesson, great musical community in Regina for sure. And, um, you know, uh, but, when I got to McGill, I really had my eyes opened and I, and, and, um, my first teacher actually for private lessons was Kirk McDonald, who oh, wow. most, okay. most Canadian, uh, saxophonists and musicians will, will, will know Kirk. And it was just by, by sheer luck for me, certainly, uh, Kirk was uh, living in Ottawa at, at the time, which is about a two, two and a half hour drive from Montreal. Mm -hmm. Um, and he would come in and uh, teach, I guess it was maybe six of us or something. He would come in and teach private lessons and book some gigs in town. Yeah. And he was my 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 first serious private teacher. And, That's um, crazy. I mean, Kirk yeah. has taught so many people. That's oh, I know, I know. Wow. And, and, and again, I didn't know who Kirk was, right, right. but it was just the timing of that one year. And, and it mm -hmm. ended up just being one of the best things. And, and um, you know, I really did... Uh, I mean, I learned a lot, but I also, um, you know, it was just a great time for me to 
I mean, I got my butt kicked, basically. Well, I know? was just going to say, I mean, if you were playing music really informally and, you know, you to then have Kirk McDonald as your first private lesson teacher, yeah, that yeah. must have shaken you up a lot. <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Not to mention, and, and I know that you, you, you were sort of asking about the whole... Uh, process of moving to a new city. Yeah, so I, yeah, so yeah. I was right out of high school, 18 mm -hmm. years old, and um, moving to a brand new city. And, you know, I really, you know, I feel like I did do a lot of my growing up in Montreal, uh, just I mean, my first time away from home. And uh, I went back after the, after my first year of my undergrad, I went back to Regina for that summer and yeah. I've, and I never went back. <laughs> Uh, and, and, you know, it wasn't by choice or anything. It's just, I was, I was certainly, you know, I found a great community in Montreal and yeah. I had some playing opportunities outside of school and the more experience I got, you know, the, 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 uh, busier I was and, and, yeah. um, you know, it was, it, it, it was, uh, fantastic. And, and I certainly, like I said, I mean, I felt, um, I felt a fair amount of pressure because of how much I didn't know. And of course, right. there are always situations in that environment, and especially at a great school like McGill, um, where I was extremely intimidated in a right. lot of ways. But, you know, I think my, uh, my, you know, I was a bit naive to some of that. And fortunately, I didn't let it get the best of me. And I just, um, you know, I mean, I also loved doing it. And I really, throughout my undergrad, I just... I just wanted to play as much as possible, yeah. and, and uh, you know, so many things that I was learning. Obviously, I, I'm 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 not sitting here saying that I digested everything because that was impossible. <laughs> yeah, but I yeah. just took what I could, mm -hmm. and 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 I kept a lot of the as as much as I possibly could, and just tried to play and just learn. And yeah, and yeah. I kind of went the other way from from how I started, where I really got into studying. I I you know I was practicing a lot. And I just listening and transcribing and going out to hear music. And uh, it was a really, really important time for me. Um, I feel like if that's super important, you know, that bit you shared about um, being in situations where, you know, you, you felt intimidated, uh, whether by the talents around you or by, or by the professors or by the situation, or feel, maybe feeling not like you weren't prepared for the situation. I remember yeah. the very first episode of, the, the, of this podcast, um, Melissa Aldana mentioned the key to musical growth uh, for her was uh, managing her ego um, in terms of those situations where you feel out of your element and just staying calm and say, you know, this, this, this is what I came here for, you know, and just um, doing what you need to, to need to, to push through to the next, next thing and really make your weaknesses a strength, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I could not agree more with that. And, and, you know, the more, um, the more music I was checking out, the more I was practicing and playing, I was, mm -hmm. I was certainly excited about, you know, about all of these new things. Um, yeah. But, you know, again, I come back to the community aspect and, and, you know, the social aspect of, of, of learning music in post-secondary. And, you know, again, I had a really great experience and, um, yeah. uh, I also just tried to focus on what I was there to do. I mean, um, and it, you know, it certainly worked out for me in that um, I was always, you know, I was always fortunate outside of school. I mean, I never really thought like I, you know, I was in my last year of high school. Oh, I think I'll go and 
study jazz saxophone at McGill if it, you know if I'm able to do it. And again, I'm I, I realize how great you know I I'm, how fortunate I am to be able to say that and to do yeah, it. And yeah. and I think about that again all the time. I was never forced or was never any pressure on me to yeah, make yeah. something of myself. Uh, uh, you know, um, of course, I wanted to do my best, but but I never felt that outside pressure. Where now, I I hear so many stories of people, um, you know, and it can just be crippling to yeah, some, yeah. you know, where they feel like there's there's already all this pressure. And of course, I I want to set high standards for myself and what I do, and and um, and that now, I mean, it means different things. You know, what it is I do, there's you know, it's become this huge sort of thing. And, and it certainly started for me at McGill. A lot of things really, you know, a lot of lights went on in terms of the music and I just trying to piece it all together. And it was a super yeah. exciting time, but, but um, it was all really my own doing, <laughs> you know what I mean? It was, uh, and again, it all started very innocently for me. And um, I have, you know, honestly, uh, just the way that my path has gone, I never could have planned it the way that it's happened. And one one positive experience has led to a lot of other positive yeah. experiences, and um, you know everybody's path is a little bit different. And um, absolutely, yeah. Uh, um, you know, I sorry, yeah. No, I was gonna say. Well, let's let's talk about that path. You know, so you 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 finished undergrad. You lived in Montreal for about ten years, and obviously at some point you moved to New York to study at Manhattan. So um, let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, so. Again, I guess I've mentioned my my initial experience with uh, with jazz school with post secondary education. Um, so I had a somewhat different experience for for my grad studies. Um, after I graduated from McGill, I spent a, the following year in Montreal, and I actually ended up playing at this place called the Old Munich which opened for Expo 67 in Montreal and it was basically this big Oktoberfest uh, bar, hangout, music venue, dance place that was in the style of, you know, um, Bavaria, you know, so they've, you've got, they've, you know, they brought everything over from Germany and, and wow. everyone's sort of in costume. And so I was in this, well, a couple different bands, but it, they were basically polka bands that, mm -hmm. that, that played all kinds of stuff besides polkas. And it was six nights a week for six oh. months. And, um, you know, there were long gigs and a lot of playing. And that's, you know, I was also kind of, you know, had my eyes opened on that, you know, on that gig because it's like, well, this is what a jazz degree got me. You know, basically <laughs> I'm playing, you know, I'm playing polka tunes and uh, and uh, top 40 hits, you know, on the weekends on this rotating stage in a pair of Lederhosen, wow. you know, <laughs> it was, but I mean, it was great. It was great. So it was during that year part of that year so a really great friend of mine who i'm thankful we're still in touch and we're still really close friends we've made music together we met in our first year at mcgill uh the trombonist kelsley grant yeah who uh uh is a professor at humber college and mm -hmm. and is here in toronto um and so he said you know i i'm i'm thinking about auditioning and applying for my master's degree at manhattan school of music and so one thing led to another, and I I thought, well, yeah, yeah, I'll, maybe I'll go down and do the audition, and uh, uh, we'll see, you know, we'll see where it leads. Yeah. So I went down with them and did the audition, got accepted, and went uh, the following year. So this was so um, I graduated McGill in 1992, um, 
And so this is fall, fall of 1993. Okay. Uh, I went down to New York and uh, I got into Bob Mincer's saxophone studio. Yeah. Got to study with Bob, a fantastic teacher and just a great, a great person. And uh, at that time, I went to his house in Brooklyn and, and took uh, lessons in his little studio upstairs and yeah. all very surreal. Uh, and and again, it felt very similar to going from Regina to Montreal did. Right. And now Montreal to New York was like, oh, man, here we go. Um, and um, so it was a two-year degree. Um, and I went back to Montreal after the first year. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get some funding for um, some of the expenses for that first year, which yeah. I applied for and did not get for for the subsequent year. So what ended up happening is I just said, okay, I'll stay in Montreal and I'll, and I'll reapply and I'll go back the following year and finish uh, school. Mm -hmm. So during that year is when I started teaching um, at McGill University. So, okay. um, and at that time it was, you know, students could request someone in the community as a private teacher and that's kind of how it started. So right. um, uh, I, I taught a couple of private students and that led to some, uh, small ensembles and anybody notable that you know that's that has a career in music you know that, that that we might know that you taught during that period of time oh sure um yeah i mean what uh, one of the f people that comes to mind i guess is uh al mclean yeah who, wow. who is is still in uh, he's in montreal and he's also yeah. an amazing saxophone technician and no he's yeah. just amazing but i mean man i can't tell you that i taught al much of anything though he was already <laughs> playing at that time, he was already playing at such a high level, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, and uh, you know, again, as as far as how things have happened for me from the teaching side, that's really when I started teaching at the post secondary level, and that so that would have been um, uh, fall of '94, I guess. Okay. okay. Um, and so I had every intention of going back to New York the following year. And, you know, for a bunch of different reasons, that one year turned into five years. Uh, I was in Montreal. I was playing in a bunch of different bands and really doing a similar thing that I've been doing here in Toronto for, for a little over 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I do just remember thinking, you know, it wasn't so much about getting the degree or the piece of paper. It was about spending more time in New York and just trying to yeah. absorb being in a place like that. I really feel like it's, it's it's a unique place, in, you know, certainly for the arts and certainly for music and certainly for jazz music, I would say, yeah. you know. I'm going to shift gears here, Kelly. Yes. I want to ask you, what have you been in pursuit of on the saxophone or maybe even creatively, artistically, you know, um, over these, mm. you know, years of playing the saxophone and, and, and being a musician, a leader, a sideman, etc.? Wow. Um well, I guess, I mean, like, like everybody, when it comes down to it, I feel like, um, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've really tried to maintain a consistent relationship with sound and my approach to it on the saxophone and how it's developed and changed over the years and what I'm able to do maybe day to day mm -hmm. to just be in touch with with um tone production on the instrument um yeah. i th you know i think that's that's i guess the first natural answer that i would say yeah, but yeah. you know when i first started studying 
and um, you know, trying to develop my repertoire and learn, you know, learn as much about the music and the history of the music, you know, as I could, um, and just play as many different, you know, styles as possible and with as many people as possible. Um, when I was first starting out, I really didn't get hooked with composition. Um, uh, and I felt actually pretty, pretty intimidated to write anything because in my mind, there were so many great songs that I didn't know. And I wanted to know and to learn and to study that I didn't, it, it, it took me a long time to, um, realize, uh, the connection between improvisation and composition. And as soon as I was sort of, uh, you know, steered in amazing directions. And I certainly, I mean, I credit a lot of great teachers that I've had, um, but the timing for me, uh, studying with Dick Oates in particular, he was someone who, who really set me uh, down that beautiful path of, of, of really, um, you know, exploring and, yeah. and really exploring for yourself and, and um, taking things that you've learned, but also just, just trying to find something on your own. And, and mm -hmm. um, so that's been something that, that, uh, you know, I'm definitely still searching as far as that goes. I mean, I, um, I wish I could sit here and say that I compose something every day in the same way as I try to play the saxophone. I don't. Um, but, you know, a lot of my compositions and certainly my early ones, they kind of start off as little exercises or little things that I might want to try to dig into a little bit more. And yeah. that leads to something else. And, and again, fortunate enough to play with amazing musicians and to collaborate and to hear my music played by them yeah. uh, way better than I could have ever, you know, imagined it. Um, but certainly along the way, I mean, I feel um, because I've, I've, I've been fortunate to uh, have, I guess, a successful career. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I know that means different things to different people, right. uh, yep. but yep. Um, yeah. uh certainly from a playing standpoint as a freelance musician um i've 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 had steady work and um you know there are things and skills that i think i've developed along the way i've also learned about you know um um dealing with people and and mm -hmm. you know the the being being part of something larger than you and and how how you want to find your way with that and um I'm, I'm really curious about 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 that you know um in terms of the things and the skills you've learned developed uh that have given you well put genius in a space where you are you are an in-demand saxophone player do would you can you share some of the things that you've that you've learned or the skills you feel like if um are in demand, the skills that are in demand as a saxophone player? Sure. Um, you know, again, a lot of my experience is, is uh, varied in that, you know, I like being in situations where, um, you know, whoever is leading the mu in charge of the music or, or the composer or the conductor or whoever it is, mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes they hear it in a very specific way and they give me instructions uh, that might be more specific than than I would be expecting. I love that challenge because it means that I have to find ways to uh, use the tools that, that I work on 
um, and try to give them what they want or what they're hearing in the music. Um, and I love, you know, I love that challenge. And, you know, it also has helped me sort of hear the instrument, I think, in, in a lot of different ways because of being allowed those opportunities to try to create something that might not come naturally, but something that is sort of required of me in certain situations, you know. Um, you know, aside from, you know, I would say even just professionalism of, of, of varying descriptions, I guess, um, you know, there is something to showing up on time and showing up prepared and uh, being easy to work with. Um, and, um, you know, I think really the big takeaway for me with everything that I surround myself with now and, um, you know, I try to reflect on it a little bit, but I also just try to keep it in the moment. And I think really, mm. uh, you can learn from any situation. And for me, I have to learn by, by, by listening to yeah. what's around me, you know, and, yeah. um, you know, there, there are, you know, I, I say this to my students all the time, but uh, it's because I believe this to be true is there are levels of all of, you know, there are levels to listening and how deeply you can listen and how you may need to listen for something very specific or it's even just, you know, pick up on what's happening and, you know, collectively and what's the mood, you know, right. what's the right, 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 mood right, right, in the right. room and what are sometimes maybe to say something and what are other times to not, you know, and just sit back and listen and, and, yeah. um, uh, you know, and it's not always musical, you know, in content, but I think that's just important. And, um, you know, I've certainly, I, I can't even tell you, based on the opportunities that, that, that I've had, um, I've just learned so much about myself that I, you know, uh, it still really comes, comes down to gratitude for me and, and mm. uh, you know, <laughs> always feeling like um there's like i said there's there's always something to learn in every situation and you know it kind of runs the gamut for me uh, you know i'm fortunate to play original music with the composers of that music like it, that's a very personal thing i get to collaborate with 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 really close friends and dear friends i also get to make music with people that i've just met 30 seconds previous <laughs> and and you know it's still you know, I you know, I want to take advantage of all those situations as much as I can. I don't want to take for granted that yeah. that I've been playing with somebody for 20 years and mm -hmm. that we just assume these things. I want to really feel what's important about that and and establishing these long term musical relationships that that, you know, a lot of times for me and still uh, came from from people that I went to school with. You know, yeah. still, you know, and sometimes they come out of the picture and sometimes they're back in and you pick up where you left off. And, you know, I, I, I will always be inspired by that, you know, and also, um, you know, I also realize that that and certainly this this time has has sort of put that even more to light, but it can be taken away very easily as well, you know, and um, I also want to remind myself that that music does not owe me one thing, <laughs> you know, I mean, just just because you're, you know, you're busy and you're successful and you're, you know, you're doing a bunch of things and, um, you know, uh, it's 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 important for me to just take advantage of of as much of that as I can. And um realize like i said that 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 uh you know i i i owe so much to music and mm -hmm. and being a musician 
it's really it's really shaped who I am as a person and not just the musical side but I would say you know a lot of the relationships and the people that you meet along the way you know the opportunity to travel and to experience new things and um, I guess another thing that I'll I'll certainly say is um, I don't want to sit here and 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 say that it's been easy, <laughs> easy you know either it's there's there's always going to be challenges and there's ups yeah. and downs and uh, I questioned a lot of things as I was doing it. When I left Montreal after the, those five years to go back to New York, I thought I was shooting myself in the foot and that, you know, I had to say, sir, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to teach at McGill. I'm going right. to quit all these bands that I was in. And it had nothing to do with me leave, wanting to leave Montreal. I just right. felt this need to do it. But I was, I, I was terrified at the time, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but... You know, just just getting back to that, you know, I, I, I mentioned I have sort of a different relationship maybe with post-secondary because I then all of a sudden I was back finishing my master's degree and I just had to be in school and to and to be a student again, you know, yeah. um, and I really appreciated that time because I think I got more out of it than had I done two consecutive years, you know. I had five years of playing and experience and teaching and 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 I really uh, I really feel like that second year especially that's when I studied with Dick Oates, mm -hmm. um, and just you know I think I was more ready to to sort of jump in and I might have had a better idea of just the perspective that I needed to. Uh, I, that really resonates with me, Kelly. You know, I I did part of my undergraduate um, program at Berkeley. And I was back home for three years. And then I moved to Toronto to finish up. And I feel like if the challenge of feeling like if, oh man, am I ever going to finish my degree? Am I, am I ever going to be able to accomplish, you know, this thing and finish it? Those three years of grinding and trying to figure out how I could actually do this yeah. prepared me to have the right perspective. So when I was back in it, I, was, I felt like if I was able to get a lot out of the, the program um, at Humble, um, because of having the right perspective, yeah. you know. So, yeah, and course. I always try to, to to share with people, you know, whether it's a, a student of mine or some just somebody that I have I'm having a conversation with. I felt I feel like if and I and I feel like if this is probably true for you too, everything that you're involved in, your relationships, the challenges, your, your interests, um, every experience play uh, affects the the or contributes to the direction and your and your path. And, you know, in, in a sense, nothing is lost. You know, it's, nothing right. is ever. Um, yeah. If it's a bad situation, then then you know how not to do it the next time. Or, you right. know, you know, you know, for next time, it's not all. Yeah, exactly. It's not all positive. And, yeah. you know, um, sorry to interrupt. No just, worries. Yeah, I was just, you know, mm -hmm. certainly with with, you know, coming into contact and, and getting to know uh, a lot of post-secondary students over the years teaching classes and mm -hmm. um and sometimes students will ask me these kinds of questions and where should I do my master's and where, you know, how do you recommend me going about doing this? And I think a lot of students feel pressure to do it when they may not feel ready. And I just say, you know, yeah. or I, I, I try to remind them, you know, these programs will always be around. And, right. I, and, and I think part of it is, you know, certainly there's a lot of pressure to, you know, move yourself forward. And, um, but to be honest, I, you know, it was certainly about learning about music and, 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 you know, 
all of the facets that that means. But for me, it was the people, you know, the people make these programs mm. and, um, you know, you will, you know, it's, it's, uh, not something that, that I don't think you should force yourself to do if you're not ready to do it, you know? Right. And at the same time, had I felt like I was ready to move to New York, I never would have moved there, you know? <laughs> like, like, so there's always that, you know, you want to push yourself and yeah, something yeah, was yeah. telling me to do it. And maybe, you know, I certainly credit my friend Kelsley for, for, mm -hmm. for, for, you know, kind of saying, well, yeah, maybe you should come and join me, you know? I yeah, mean, it yeah, was, yeah. But um, so again, it's part of the, you know, it's who you surround yourself with Absolutely. and sort of, you, you know, you see their direction. And I've had so many, you know, supportive uh, people and just from all areas of my musical life, my, yeah. you know, my educational life, my professional life. I mean, you know, it's great. It's certainly not something that although we like to think that we're in a practice room by ourselves and and and, you know, we're thinking about you know, us all the time. Uh, it's really about what you can project and what you can give to others, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I've certainly been on the receiving end of that for a really long time and, and, uh, I'm grateful for it, you know? Yeah, absolutely, man. No, I, I want to go back to something that you shared earlier on, um, when we were talking about, um, what you've been in pursuit of, uh, actually, I want to ask a question. Um, I think I kind of know the answer, but um, in terms of something that has become part of your musical DNA, um, yeah, what what what, yeah. what would you say that is? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, sound for me is is priority number one, and yeah. um, it might be an obvious thing to say yeah. uh, because, of course, it you know we are we are attached to our sound. We are you know regardless of how we may think about it. And this is something that for me, again, when I when I was first starting out, even when I was at McGill, you know, of course, I, I wanted to get a good sound, but I was doing it by trying to just copy sounds that I liked and that I heard. Right. I wasn't really thinking about like if, if someone were to sit down and say, well, how are you doing that? Yeah, I wouldn't be able to answer them. I, I you know, and eventually I I have, you know, changed in that, you know, I like to think about the mechanics of things right. and how right. and 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 how that can lead to a more consistent approach mm -hmm. and and certainly with the way that i like to work on sound um you know i have a set thing that i've been doing probably for 20 25 years mm -hmm. um but it feels different every day and i know what i need to get out of it to do it right. um and um i spend time focusing on it so that when i'm playing music I'm not really thinking about it in that way. That's, Would you mind sharing yeah. some of oh. that was um, right now? Some of the the, the things you've been, you've been working on over the years. Song. Oh, sure, sure. Um, basically, it's uh, I mean, it's long tones and overtone matching essentially. Cool. Um, cool. And you know, I guess part of part of the uh, the path for me, I guess, uh, you know, I guess has has even tried to just differentiate what is like the actual tone of the instrument and then everything else. In other mm. words, you know, things that we're drawn to, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, vibrato and articulation and, and yeah. uh, you know, scoops and like the vocal part of being yeah. a saxophonist, which is yeah. great. It's, it's, it's certainly one thing that draws me to it, but yeah. I sort of needed to eliminate all of that and then 
sort of realize, well, what are some things that I can do to to add to the sound? Mm. Everything, you know, aside from tone production is an extension of your sound. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make up anything about the tone. You mm. know what I mean? And so just different ways of manipulating huh. it. Yeah, like, that's, so, a, that's, a, that's a cool way to think about it. I feel like if I... Um, and I'm totally guilty of this when I was when I was younger, just in terms of trying to add the other things without starting fundamentally with good sound. Oh, I mean, I I pretty much tried to tell you earlier that that's exactly what I was doing, you know. And, <laughs> and, but and and um, you know, I also think that's great, just kind of jumping in, you know. Right. right and right. again, I learning I've, by I've, doing. Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and I've yeah, sort of yeah. needed to go back and revisit these things, yeah. you know, because of that. But now I, you know, um, ultimately, it's still about just putting a little bit of focus on it. Because, look, I mean, if you don't spend some time really listening to the sound that's coming out of your horn, who's going to do that? <laughs> or how do you expect other people to listen? Or what do you think they're listening for? You know, like... <laughs> So, uh, and again, it's, it, most of this exercise for me and just how I think about practicing is really just about, um, the importance of how I listen to myself and, um, you know, how much I'm really able to, uh, contribute to what comes out of the horn, you know? Um, and again, the other side that's just as important for me is not to think about it when the music is being made, you know? Um, and practice, again, there's a pretty famous Miles Davis quote: "Practice sober, play drunk." I think I'm messing up the quote, but something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, like you know, it's uh, I have sort of a two, I guess it's a double-edged um thing along those lines about just practicing and playing. But yeah. um, you know, I, somewhere in there, even though I might be practicing a very specific thing, mm-hmm. I want to practice th- the way I want to play. You know, there's so many, you know, um, in other words, if I'm working on a tune, then I want to imagine, you know, I want to play it in time in some way. Mm -hmm. I want to imagine a rhythm section playing with me or or playing along with another horn, something that puts me in that moment. It's more of a mindset, I suppose, but it helps to to sort of streamline the practice. I, you know, I think everyone's guilty of like, oh, how does that tune go again? And you just sort of, you know, I mean the notes you kind of remind yourself of what the notes are but you don't work on all of the other elements simultaneously which is what we need to do when we play yeah, yeah. so so that's kind of where that's coming from practice the way you want to play make sure that you're embracing as many of the elements and and that you're listening for these things so that you have more to offer when you play with others at least that's so my that I want approach. to put a pin there Kelly because I think that's super important okay because I I feel like if you know, myself having gone through an undergrad program, um, and I think there's there's a lot of undergraduate or maybe just students of saxophone and um, and um, what's the word I want to use? Um, aspiring sax, uh, professional saxophone players that might feel the frustration of knowing, having enough awareness of where they're at musically, knowing where they want to go having a bunch of information that somebody may be on the other end, a professional award-winning saxophone player, they have the same information, but they don't know how to organize that information in the practice room to get there. And I feel, feel like if what you just shared about um, practicing the way that you want to sound, 
sets up a framework for like an approach in the practice room. So we'll come back to that, but yes, I want to give you the opportunity to just share um, uh, how you worked on sound. Yeah, of course, of course. I wanted to mention, so mm -hmm. practice the way you want to play. Mm -hmm. And then the other side or kind of the addendum to that is don't practice on the bandstand. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. In other words, just because I've worked on this line in all 12 keys, yeah. I'm, I'm going to make sure I play that line, you know, whether or not it makes sense and what's going on in the music or not. Yeah. You know, or you don't just just because you might work on a tune and play 10 choruses. It doesn't mean yeah. that you play 10 choruses on the bandstand. Right. It doesn't. I, I feel like if that's a really sorry, Kelly, I feel yeah. like if that's a really I, I agree. I feel like if it's an an it's an abstract. Well, not abstract. It's a subjective idea. And, you know, how do you find the balance between that's knowing, it? You no, know, it's 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 tricky. Um, so since we're here. Let's talk about that. How do you find the balance? Um, for me, the longer that I play, the, the more music that I play, uh, the balance for me is all in the fundamentals and coming okay. back to the fundamentals, oh. I guess, you know. Um, and again, all of the different levels that I want to make sure I'm listening. It's, you know, I mean, I, I, I kind of think of the, you know, the act of playing this music with people in the moment is like there is a lot of multitasking going on from yeah. everyone and whether we're aware of it or not it's it's still happening on some level so part of the practicing like specific practice for me is about maybe just taking some of the layers away mm. and isolating some of those things so i have at least a better understanding of my concept of it so yeah. like i said i can i can you know, I can offer a little bit more, hopefully, uh, when I'm playing with others or or at least give myself an opportunity to listen to them as I'm playing. Right. This is the other thing. Is, is, yeah. Sorry. No, go ahead. Finish. Finish the thought. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, this whole idea of 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 what do you listen for, you know, in in the moment of playing music? We you know, we practice all this stuff and, and it's supposed to prepare for these moments that just go by, you know, and then they're done. <laughs> So um, a lot of this is, it might feel like it's counterintuitive, but this is where for me, it's all, it all comes back to my understanding of some fundamental things. And I think this is where these long tones came from. I mean, like I said, I, I didn't think about a lot of this stuff for a really long time. Um, so again, a lot of things with my approach have happened because of experiences that I had as well. Like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, when I first started playing with Maynard Ferguson's band, uh, it, it's a loud band and we were playing loud. And I mean, um, I, I remember, you know, certainly within the first week of, of my first tour, uh, I lost my voice. I couldn't talk. I was, I was like, I was just, I was pushing. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, all I could really think to do was to balance it with really getting into a like a regimented warm up where right. I was playing as quietly as I could. Mm -hmm. And that led me to really understanding that my tone, you know, I, I we, we all strive to have, a, you know, a warm, full, even tone in all registers and in all dynamic levels. 
Um, and that's certainly what has led me down the way that I work on sound is that, yeah. you know, I want to strip all that other stuff away. And, um, you know, that that was sort of what spearheaded, you know, a lot of my sound uh, concept or the way that I've been working on it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, fast forward at the end of that gig with Maynard Ferguson, I never thought twice about really like, you know, I certainly I got a lot out of playing in that band because I also realized it's not just about volume. It's about, you know, you can work on your sound and and um, have control of it for when you're playing ensemble stuff and whatever. But I want my tone to be the same no matter what mm -hmm. the dynamic level is. Mm. And so that's what I try to do. And that's where overtones and matching okay. and cool. gets come, comes in. Um, so, you know, I have, a, I have a set kind of routine that I do. And, and, and again, I do it in time. I just put a metronome on 60 BPM or, okay. or uh, the ballad, uh, one of the ballad settings on Drum Genius. Yep, yep. Uh, and, and I just, uh, I do the same duration all the time. Um, I start on, on the, you know, the first harmonic off of the low B flat and I go as, as chromatically up as I can. Um, I normally have, uh, you know, a tuner as well, so I can sort of see where right, yep. things are slotted in. But again, I mean, for me, the whole principle behind the overtones is uh, the horn is resonating more when, when it's, you know, when you're playing the lower notes. So yeah, yeah. that's the sound that I want to keep re reinforcing so that yeah. I'm not, you know, uh, you know, I refer to it as, you know, being accused as, uh, you know, just being a button pusher, right. you know, so that, oh, well, I know this note is here, so I'll just finger the note and play. But it's, yeah. it's, like it's about sort of pre-hearing pre the note and the quality mm -hmm. of the sound. And so I need to reinforce that, you know, every yeah. day. So that it's there again. It's there when I need it. So, um, so I do it. Uh, I do the overtone for four counts. Mm -hmm. Switch to the real fingering for four counts. Back yeah. to the overtone for four. Rest for four. Okay, and then up, up chromatically. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, <laughs> semitones yep. maybe i could um so i'll do b c c sharp c sharp is a good one to do because of the fact that it's, it's open. an open fingering yeah, yeah, yeah. and and uh of course it's not about getting it perfect it's about again hearing the overtone knowing that that is the actual tone of the instrument you know yeah, and you're trying to match it as closely as possible exactly yes exactly and yeah. um you know things that that I've needed to focus on basically, uh, I think of three main elements, I guess, the air quality, mm -hmm. um, what my embouchure is doing, specifically mm -hmm. my bottom lip, mm -hmm. and my tongue position, which is oh. coming from, you know, the Joe Allard, Dave, yep. Dave Liebman concept. And I really, you know, I'm totally on board with that. I think it's and open. is your everything. tongue really low and the back high? Um, so in, uh, in order to control the pitch, Right. I have to, most people, I guess, and myself included, you have to bring the overtone down in, 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 in pitch. It's, it's going to be a little yeah. sharper. So it's that split second adjustment of, of, of making sure that, you know, if you've got your tongue really low, 
in order to get that note in tune, then you have to bring your tongue position up in order to exactly. keep the pitch. That's what I had to do for that note. Right. You know, right. and right. again, right. just trying to, you know, blur, blur the lines as much as possible. And something mm -hmm. about my tone and about my sound, if I'm working on this, um, it's always one of those three elements that, that may need to be slightly adjusted, you know, and mm -hmm. you put a different read on and it's a, it's a completely different ball yeah. game altogether. So, <laughs> You know, again, it's not it's consistency over perfection every time. Mm, but okay, but okay. after doing it for as long as I have, I mean, I've I've sort of been through a lot of different, um, you know, rela <laughs> relationships with it. Uh, but I certainly realize the importance of it. And, and so, again, I work my way up to the to to the top. Um, mm -hmm, a couple mm -hmm. things that I that I do um, once we get so. So the F off the B flat, so mm -hmm. so second one, yep. uh, and so if I do the uh, G sharp off the C sharp, yep. I'll do high A off low D next. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like a, you know, it's a break point on the yeah. horn yeah, because... Yeah because this vent all of a sudden comes into the equation. So I mm -hmm. like to use that one. And then I do high B flat off low E flat. Mm -hmm. And then when I match it, I play the high B flat. And when I go back down, I go to the low B flat. Oh, okay. Cool. So it's, it's oh, just yeah. how I've done it for a while. Yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's like a little pivot thing. So, mm -hmm. um, so low E flat, I guess. Uh, Yeah, that was that was pretty pretty consistent, you know. And that, those notes. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't right there for me, but I appreciate you saying so. And and uh, and, and then B same, C the same. So now we're high C sharp. Yeah. So I won't. I'll just fast forward a little bit. And then yeah, no this is where it gets a little weird. Uh, high D off the low B flat. Okay. Yeah. So you don't ever use G for the high, for the high D. No. Okay. Cool. No, I don't. Yeah. Um, maybe I should. That's good. I'll go back. <laughs> so uh, uh, D sharp off the B. Yeah. Pitch is a bit funky, but yeah. And then E off the low C, and yeah. I'll do I'll do palm and and uh, front E. Mm -hmm. Okay. So okay. I'll match both. Yeah. Yeah. And the same with F. So then I go back to low B flat here. For the high F, okay. Yeah, and then I'll do uh, palm, uh, I'll I'll do front first, and then palm. Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, yeah. But when I do palm, then and again, this is all with the four counts in between yes, yes, all yes, one series. Yes, it's yes. it's about six minutes long, something like that. Mm -hmm. For the whole um, exercise, chromatically. Yes, yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. um, which is an That's important good to thing know. as well. That's good yes. to know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and again, it's taken a long time to get to that point, and I mm -hmm. feel certain. You know, I mean, it's really about helping me get in touch with how I'm feeling physically on the horn, and mm -hmm. usually, you know, I want to feel it right here. <laughs> you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but then I do something as well where. This is coming from, you know, people 
uh, like playing the mouthpiece, right? And and, mm-hmm. and controlling the pitch with your tongue position. So I do one um, where I, uh, so I'm on the palm F now and I'll slur yeah. down three semitones. Mm-hmm. So. Again, I'll do it. I'll, I'll do those quarter notes with yeah. 60 BPM mm-hmm. and the same off of E. go um i'll so now i'm on the high d mm-hmm. i'll go right from that note and slur all the way down the minor third and back up so mm-hmm. then i'll do the combinations of whole steps and half steps so okay I'm totally speeding through this, but I would yeah, do it. Yeah, yeah. I do it in time, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then I'll stop when I get to the to the low D. Um, the reason I like to do that is because normally, and every you know we're all guilty of this. I'm probably the worst offender, <laughs> but the higher you go on the horn, the more you feel like mm, yeah. you, gotta, you gotta come up. So yeah. this is my reminder of just keep it open and. Yeah. And keep it relaxed. And I've got I've got some other you know some other things. And this is it's certainly I I didn't come up with any of this stuff. I mean this, this is out there, and it's just the way that that I have I've I've really found consistency with mm-hmm. with sticking to a similar thing because it gives me everything I need really to to make sure I'm listening to all of these things you yeah. know very yeah. very intently. And it's really about air. It's really about just putting air through the horn first i Mm -hmm. do this at the beginning of the day so um and you know again keeping dynamics i mean for whatever reason i've got the headphones on i'm probably playing a little louder than i (laughs) normally would obviously the higher you go it feels like you're playing louder so i want to be aware of that as well um and i mean really it's like I said, it's really by far now for me the most important thing I need to be in touch with on the instrument, um, because it's you know it it like I, you know I guess thinking about pitch, um, it's not really I'm not striving to be like okay I'm perfectly in tune in, in every single no I need flexibility so that when I'm playing maybe a vibraphone or something that's 442 or whatever, like uh, knowing how I need to manipulate the pitch to match who, who it is I'm playing with, you know? Right. Um, and this comes into the great, you know, like front line, like playing with other horn players or something and kind of getting a sense of where they might hear and feel the yep. pitch and how to just snuggle in there, you know? Yep. Uh, and, and so, you know, again, this is not, I mean, it's a regimented thing that I do, but I want it to be as open and, and you know, open-ended and loose as possible so that I can, you know, it, um, I can try to use it in mm-hmm. those environments, you know. Well, you know, Kelly, one of the things that, that have been really helpful for me since I've, you know, left school, uh, well, finished my undergrad, and um, is a shift in my perspective as, like, in the practice room. So... I, I tend to think of myself as like the, the term I use is as a sound athlete. Um, I I think there's something that's very well. There's 
playing music is a very physical thing, you know. Yeah. And um, you know, I've been recently doing some lessons with John Gordon, and he oh, sort of right. like reinforces that idea of like it. It kind of has to feel like work a little bit, you know. Yeah. If 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 it doesn't feel like work, you're probably not putting enough air through the through through the horn. That's and that. um, so that there's that idea of physicality, and so I find you know the, the way that athletes train is that they have very set regimens that they go through every day. Um, and some of them might be very specific. And then some of them, like you mentioned, might be a little bit more open-ended to give room to increase like the headroom of the exercise, whether it's lifting more weights or running slightly faster or running yeah. longer or whatever it is. So mm -hmm. I, I find that, you know, you mentioned like the, the long-tone exercise. So the overtone exercise takes about six minutes to, to complete. I find that musicians don't usually speak with that kind of language. And for me, that's really been, been really important to say, hey, this thing takes this amount of time because, you know, we're working with time all the time, yeah. you know? Yeah, and, and you know, this um, this exercise for me, I think one of the one of the things that, that took the longest is to work it into something that, that doesn't take a long time. I mean, yeah. I, and I know that different players have different approaches where they may yeah. not do these kinds of exercises and then they'll do it like every second or third day, but they'll, they might do it for longer. Like it's right. really whatever works, but you know, again, time management for me in, in this context has, has certainly been something that I've needed to learn how to, how to, yeah, how to do. Same here, same and here. it's also, um, you know, because if you think about it, and this is definitely something that I address or I try to address with, with, um, up and coming saxophonists or, or first year undergrad, students where you know really trying to use your time uh it's not about the more things that you learn it's like well now i have to add this amount of time to my practice and this amount mm -hmm. of time and i i understand that's going to be overwhelming you yeah, know absolutely. so uh you know this is certainly what everybody kind of needs to filter through and some of this for me um has been i don't want to say solved but i've sort of uh and this is over a bunch of years of course but um, you know, really thinking away from the instrument also and trying to process things in your, in your head. It's not like, I'm not someone that just, just because I don't have the saxophone strapped to me, I'm not thinking about music in some way, or at least I want to, you know, I want to give myself the opportunity. I'm not saying I have to analyze everything musically going on at all times, but like, you know, it's like even just to spend a little bit of time sort of focusing on something it's like wait so if, if it's this chord and it's this oh I see. you know like things that that i might only think about if i'm practicing or i might not think about it and just play the sound and not realize what it is you know what yeah. Uh, yeah, like yeah. or any number of those things like it's it this is definitely it's like there's a moving target and it's the whole it's a work in progress certainly for me and always will be like i'm cool with not needing to change that warm up exercise. I know that it's, you know, because, and this is great actually, just the, earlier in the week, I played a two night gig with uh, the Karn Davidson Nine at mm -hmm. the Jazz Bistro in Toronto and playing live music and playing playing two sets of music. You know, there's a physical thing that yeah. could not be recreated in the practice room mm -hmm. that, yeah. for me. And so the important thing for me was, again, the whole physical side of playing and the focus and the mental energy and all of those important things. But, you know, the morning of after the first gig is when I really was listening to that long tone exercise going, OK, now where are we? Like, <laughs> like, because, you know, when you start playing 
on a regular basis and you finish the gig and maybe the last tune was this up-tempo burner and you're, you know, you're playing super loud, you put the horn in the case, right? And then you pick it up the next day and it's like, you know, (laughs) this this is what it's kind of like hitting, you know, the factory reset or something. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. Just Just starting. You can come back to yeah, kind of like a temperature checker. Yeah, totally. But certainly if I was, you know, it was definitely I was feeling it physically both nights for sure. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to just ease into it and kind of embrace the fact that it didn't necessarily feel like I could play another night like that right away you know it takes Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it takes a little bit of time but um again but but for me that is one of the benefits of doing that exercise uh as consistently as i've been doing it without needing to change it like i said it's you know some of this too isn't about how long i can hold a note for right it's like i always you know i do it at 60 BPM and I don't need to change that so that it helps me, you know, I try to think about how I breathe and if I breathe in time or um, a dynamic level maybe that I'm, I'm trying to shoot for. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm hoping that, that, that will, you know, doing that consistently is going to help me in a lot of different musical situations. Um, I certainly have spent a lot of time, um, trying to play in the low register of the horn uh, using a full sound yeah. at a low dynamic without playing subtone. Oh, I okay. Guess, right? Like yeah, that's, yeah. and again, as a, you know, as an exercise, like I, you know, I find myself sort of comparing it to the idea of when we listen to a recording, whether it's on headphones or speakers or whatever, and we adjust the volume. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the only thing that's changing is the volume, Right. right the quality of the audio is not, is not changing. And, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, certainly for us, I mean, pitch can change, but consistency of air has helped me realize that I need to be actually way more consistent. Yeah. So those things, I'm not fighting those things. And that's hard right. to do. That's not, yeah, you know, yeah. it kind of goes against some of the natural tendencies of the instrument. And yeah. I'm not saying I do that all the time, but I want to make sure that I can do it because it's, it's challenging for me to, you know, to, uh, focus on that stuff so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <coughs> you know i tend to feel like you know w- you know we're sort of really getting into the, the nitty-gritty of the, of the horn and the things that we discuss that that we're discussing may not be important to many people you know or that's de- <laughs> definitely not to you know somebody who just listens to music you know yeah. casually yeah. but however um i feel like if these fundamental things are, are on the horn and as you know as us as, as, as players if we're able to work on these things it definitely increases our ability to communicate on the instrument which gives us the ability to connect with those people even even better you know? yeah. yes and i i totally agree with that i have also been uh part of what has you know got me as as committed to really knowing the sound that's coming out of my horn or at least trying to control it as much as possible control isn't I don't like the word, but anyways, yeah, yeah, I get um, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, people, I know so many music lovers that I think have more of a musical ear than I do, you know, and mm. they hear things in people's sounds that they don't need to worry about the technical elements behind it, but they actually can get to the heart of the message maybe faster than a lot of musicians can because we can get too caught up in that stuff and and 
uh, I've had great conversations with people that that really, in some way, have have taught me to, uh, you know, and this is certainly true of any sort of study that you may want to do, but it's like just listen to the music for what it is, you know, yeah. like like listen to it for what it is and get get a sense of what that might mean for you because we all put our own <laughs> yeah. stuff, you know, I mean, it's hard to not put judgment on these things, mm. you know, but, but, but again, this is like just trying to listen for what's there, you know, and this is certainly, I mean, for me, <laughs> you know, when I was younger, I was drawn to certain saxophone players and I was less drawn to others because I wasn't, again, I was guilty of not listening to it for what it was. I was right. trying to put something in the music that, that had no business being there in the first place. <laughs> and and so yeah. it's, so I lost out of that one, yeah, you know, and yeah, it took yeah, me a yeah. long time to really, and I'm again, this has to do with listening. Too. Yeah, it, it really all comes down to listening and how yeah, do you yeah. listen? How deeply can you listen? Mm. Um, and certainly, I mean, now I have the good luxury of, of going back and listening to recordings mm -hmm. after maybe years and years of not listening to them, but, but intently listening when I was first checking them out, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, got into John Coltrane. Well, I got to find every John Coltrane recording and I got to sit down and listen to it beginning to end and digest as much as I can, you know? Mm -hmm. And now I go back to those records. I'm like, well, I, I certainly didn't digest a quarter <laughs> of what it was, but I love it even more. You know, every time I go back, I, you know, we hear new things in these recordings. Yeah, the new, yeah. it, you know, it's not, it, and, and it's not always from the theoretical side or it's like something about the emotional content or, or, you know, any number of things. Great. Um, yeah. Cool, man. <laughs> well, it's, it's definitely been, uh, more than a pleasure chatting with you about all of these things, Kelly. Um, I'd mentioned here that one of the things that I've heard you mention back in 2014 during the summer workshop that had have, have, I didn't quite get at the time, but has really been helpful for me in recent times is the idea of, I think, I think the phrase you used was the first type of articulation you should work on is finger articulation. Mm, mm, mm. And um, yeah. I was like, finger articulation, which is pretty much slurring. And so yeah. for, for a long time, I worked on everything being slurred, but then I realized it still wasn't, I, I, there's still an aspect of it that I didn't get. And recently I sort of went back to it and there's sort of a way that you can articulate just with the fingers on the, on the horn that, that I yeah. recently realized. Yeah. Um, so that's amazing. First of all, that you remember that and that it, mm -hmm. that, that it stuck with you. So, I mean, I guess a couple different concepts for me and why I like to at least focus on that or be aware of it and make sure that I can kind of do it mm. is articulation doesn't mean tonguing all the time, right? right? As soon as we move from one note to the next and changing pitch, we are, that, that is a form of articulation. We're hearing yeah. a different pitch yeah. and, it, and it may have to do with the accuracy of your fingers to create the, maybe the, to uh, to create the illusion of a of some yeah, kind of articulation yeah, yeah. um or if it's sloppy sometimes depending on the note other notes kind of jump in there so yeah, yeah. it really affects and the other side to it too is time we're playing time yeah 
Yep. Right? That's a big one. And, yep. and if you don't have time in your fingers, like in some way, if you're, all, you know, if you're focused on, okay, my fingers have to do this and I got to play with good sound and my tongue has and to tongue, do this. Yeah. Yeah. Aren't you making it more difficult for yourself? Absolutely. That, you know, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And again, this isn't as, you know, it's certainly not as easy as I'm making it out to be or not as cut and dried because it's about variety. I just want to add that to my way of playing a phrase if I want to, you know, yeah. and be yeah. just as comfortable with that, knowing that my fingers need to do what they need to do. Mm -hmm. um, but then also trying for me to simplify my articulation process so I can use it in hopefully ways that that the music needs me to do it, whether it's ensemble playing or uh, mm -hmm. things that I know I need to do. But again, all of these things are extensions of my sound. They are not part of my sound. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you listen to like somebody like Charlie Parker and you mm -hmm. listen to how he articulated, if you try to recreate or, or his approach only by uh, by tonguing, it's almost impossible. And it almost sounds like over articulating some, mm -hmm. sometimes. Um, yeah. And John John was one of the people that kind of made me aware of this. Um, and so I, I, it's been super helpful for me, as you said, to simplify the amount of tonguing I do and start with those, that finger articulation as the, as the foundation. And the big thing is time. You know, I've really struggled um, with just like developing a really consistent time feel that feels good all the time that doesn't matter regardless of what I'm playing and I find that that's been really helpful at making sure that the time is starting here yeah and that the tongue is really adding accents um to phrases yeah yeah these yeah, are yeah. all just little drums aren't they yeah right? yeah like yeah, and yeah. these are just little these are drumsticks <laughs> yeah 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 you know? yeah man well kelly it's it's been a pleasure chatting with you i want to do one thing before before you wrap up this conversation yes um we'll okay. end we'll end this conversation with um okay. let's I'll, i call it three two one so please share three albums that have been really influential for you Okay. two saxophone players that have been really influential and then end with one piece of advice for the okay audience. okay Whew. You know, <laughs> three, two, one. These are, uh, they're all extremely difficult questions <laughs> uh okay so three albums um and i'm gonna go chronologically okay uh so ellington at newport okay 1956 mm -hmm. uh mostly because of the famous diminuendo and crescendo in blue, uh, 27 choruses of blues in D flat by Paul Gonzalez, who I think is, is, is a very unsung, uh, uh, hero of the tenor saxophone. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'll say that one. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say, uh, a night at the village Vanguard, Sonny Rollins, okay. mm -hmm. 1957, the trio recording. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I mean, he's just, you know, I, I love Sonny Rollins. Yeah, <laughs> he had yeah, to yeah. be on one of the, you know, on one of my uh, lists for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and the third one, I'll say uh, Miles Davis live at the Plug Nickel. Oh, okay. From any of the, I mean, all of the gig was recorded, but that's 1965. Mm -hmm. Uh Wayne Shorter, okay. Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter, Tony Williams, they're playing standards with the exception of agitation, mm -hmm. but every other tune is a standard and they are 
stretching it and really, you know, creating these beautiful, uh, you know, these beautiful improvisations on mm -hmm. on on standard tunes, and it, it it opened up my ears a lot. I mean, I love Wayne Shorter as well. I think he's a super influential player for me. Yeah, um, yeah. Also interesting to note, I didn't really think about it until recently, but there are three live recordings also, and I think that um, that's definitely, uh, you know, there's something magical about about yeah. hearing hearing live music, you know, mm. and live recorded music where where there's just kind of an honesty to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, two musicians that have been... Okay, so two musicians. Okay, so I I guess I'll I'll stick with saxophonists, mm -hmm, although, sure. I mean, it, it's two, that's... Yeah, it's a saxophone uh, podcast, so yeah, here we go. Yes, of course. <laughs> um, so, so I do have to say John Coltrane. Yeah. Um, again, for just, I think, um, his contribution to saxophone playing and to the music, and also mm -hmm. just to, uh, I would say exposing me to you know non non-musical uh uh connection i guess mm -hmm. you know like there's certainly something i would say that's spiritual about about yeah. his music mm -hmm. and and about him and the other i would say is uh joe henderson okay cool i i'm, I'm a huge fan of joe henderson amazing <laughs> can you leave us with one piece of advice yes I tell this to my students all the time. I try to live by this. Work hard, but not too hard. Mm. Have fun, but n not too much fun. <laughs> I think the right balance. balance that's, this is it. it it's yeah, 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 important. Yeah. It's important. <laughs> yeah. Well, Kelly, thank you so much, Ron. I want to take a second to shout out one of the podcast subscribers, um, Nathan Bellot. Um, This podcast really wouldn't reach us as far as it has you know without you guys all 300 and something of you who have subscribed to the to the podcast um i'm really hoping to be able to connect with more of the saxophone community worldwide and um kelly can you um share where we can keep in contact with you and, and oh. keep up to the things that you're involved in sure um i have a website kellyjefferson.net and it's got a schedule there, some some upcoming performances that are finally starting to come back, which is great. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so you can you can find some more things out about me there. Are you on any social media? Uh, at the moment, I'm mm -hmm. taking a little bit of a break from social cool. media. Cool. Uh, so my website is is where you'll be able to find at least performances and things like that. So amazing. Okay, man. I hope this conversation was um, beneficial, inspiring for you. Um, and I hope that, you know, Kelly sharing his journey and, and some of what he does in the practice room helps you on your own musical, artistic and creative journey. So thanks so much for tuning in and I'll catch you next time on the next episode. Take care, guys. Thanks again, Kelly. Thank you.